My name is Dr. Reese Granger. Welcome to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. In this week, in this episode, as promised, I'm going to go over the sixth international conference in concussion in the sports group. Uh, as I said last week, I hadn't read the paper, it was 17 pages long. Finally got through it, got to make some notes. So in this episode, we're going to cover everything related to that. So the Concussion Sports Groups held their sixth international conference, as previously discussed, and it was in Amsterdam. And they've updated their guidelines, which have just been released in this journal article. As much as things have stayed the same or existing research has been further validated, there have been a few updates and amendments which I'd like to bring forth and to your attention. This along with one glaring omission, which previously stated about concussion, and that was about CTE and the link to concussion. We'll talk about that one at the end. So before I get stuck into the weeds and the guts of this journal article, I want to talk to you and tell you that everything that I talk about in this episode is based on my opinion and my interpretation of the research. Okay, because here in Australia, which unfortunately, or I guess depends how you look at it, other countries and overseas, practitioners in terms of manual health therapists, physiotherapists, osteopaths, they can diagnose a concussion. In Australia, the only person that can diagnose a concussion sorry, is a medical doctor. So that's a doctor that's been to university for four years or five years, depending if they've come out of school with an undergrad for their doctorate or gone through the GAMSTAT where they've had a postgrad degree to go in, but that's another conversation for another day. Anyway, they're the only ones that can diagnose a concussion in Australia, okay? So hence why you'll see a lot of people state how write notes or talk about that are in the manual therapy field or healthcare practitioner field they'll say suspected concussion and then provide the practicing doctor notes through history observation to aid their clinical decision making and then the doctor has the last call okay so again it is just based on my opinion my interpretation of the research what i find kind of ironic about this as as a chiro and physios, osteopaths, we can diagnose a WOD or a whip, whiplash-associated disorder, but we can't diagnose a concussion. Yet the signs, symptoms, and presentation for the most part of these two, they overlap. So every concussion, you're going to have some sort of WOD diagnosis or component, but yet not every whiplash-associated disorder will have a concussion. Briefly, a WOD or whiplash associated disorder happens around that 4 to 6G marks off the top of my head, whereas a concussion typically up around the 70s, 80s, 90G marks, even though some people can get concussed at 32Gs. You kind of get where I'm going and what I'm saying. Anyway, first of many rants I'm over, sorry again, stumbling on the words, and first of many opinions. All right, let's crack on with it before I make a meal of it. So first off, the paper or the consensus statement is a systematic review of the literature with 
10 other systematic reviews informing the overall arching and consensus outcome. Remember, I stated last week, a systematic review is they gather all the evidence based on their inclusion criteria and then summarize and go through all that. So with the review of the consensus statements and the outcome, they referred to 11 Rs and broke it down into this. So sports-related concussion, the 11 Rs have been recognize, reduce, remove, refer, reevaluate, rest, rehabilitate, recover, return to learn, return to sport, reconsider, and residual effects. Firstly, I just apologize as well. I've got a couple of things that I'll literally be reading straight off a bit of paper because I can't summarize it. And that's exactly what has been said, which was pretty evident just then. Okay, so the biggest one is now the SCAT 5 has now been changed to a SCAT 6 for adults and adolescents. The SCAT is used to assess and show the differences or basically discriminate between a concussed and a non-concussed person or athlete. Best utilized within a 72-hour period post-injury. And it's always important to remember that you have to have a previously done SCAT test, whether it be pre-season or if they've started the season, but they haven't been concussed. Concussed, sorry. Because you're comparing these two SCAT scores, okay, to see is there any discrepancy. Now, the biggest thing that they've come up with changing from a SCAT 5 to a SCAT 6 is that the SCAT 5 had ceiling effects, which is when participants score high on the test or results all clustered towards one end of the test of a perfect score. This was counted by making a five-word recall section into a ten-word recall section, basically making the test more cognitively demanding. Further in this, it was suggested to increase task-specific components like naming months in reverse to have a timed aspect instead of just saying name the months in reverse we can do that. It just takes us a little bit of time, but if you put time pressure on it, a lot harder. And the same with a tandem gate, time pressure on it. The second one was now that the sports concussion office assessment tool, geez, get that out, has been revised to correlate with the SCAT 6 as well. So it's now called the SCOTA 6. We all love acronyms in healthcare. They're absolutely everywhere. Okay, so... This is involved again from the SCAT 6 into a clinical management tool for assessing and evaluating an individual post-concussion with a series of questions regarding their symptoms. Some of the changes that are aligned with the SCAT are like the 10-word recall and the time gate. Others are recommendations which include measurements of systolic and diastolic blood pressure going from supine on your spine to laying and standing again back and forth. So, yeah, supine, you're just laying on your back, basically. Evaluation of cervical segment, midline tenderness, and a neurological examination, including cranial nerves, motor function, sensation, and deep tendon reflexes. Okay, I'm going to go over a couple of things here. A little bit of a side note and a little bit of a tangent. It's just that I want to interject on this, give you some advice from my experience and assessing students in exams, and also reading other clinicians' notes when doing patient handover. When doing any sort of note writing, whether you suspect a concussion and you're doing a soaker, 
six or you're in a clinic just treating someone's general injury screening to rule out big bad nasties always write down a grade or a visual observation of a range of motion or what you mean by normal or abnormal reason i'm saying is this is we don't know what someone's normal is a compared to someone else's normal okay so my normal is different to your normal okay what is abnormal what did you not test why did you not test it okay so all right i'll give you a couple more examples of this what i mean brief rant rundown of anatomy so when writing notes everything is what we call from anatomical position so if we're standing up toes pointing forward palms facing forward and you're looking to the forward of the room if you divide your body to back and front this is and put a line between your ears and then cut straight down there this is the coronal plane if you cut a person in half at the waist transverse plane if you're separating someone from left to right sagittal plane and if something is above something superior below is going to be inferior so your head's superior to your waist and your feet are inferior to your knees medial is midline or closest to the belly button per se lack of a better term and lateral is away anterior is at front posterior is at back lastly flexion is a decreasing angle between the joint and extension is basically an increase of the distance in the angle of the joint so few examples and we'll start with a simple one first range of motion and this ties back into again as if you're a clinician writing notes or just generally assessing on a weekend or if you are filling out the forms on the the skoka number six okay again i'll go range of motion the cervical spine cervical spine sorry as that's what you're going to be dealing with in concussion don't just write wnl on the paperwork okay wnl stands for within normal limits what is normal limit so the way i break it down is start with observation first anything look visually abnormal compared to what normal looks like if so is it emergency referral needed no move on if yes hightail them out your office get into the ed so we start with active range of motion so active range of motion is the person moves the body part themselves okay so flexion of the c-spine i think it's about 80 90 degrees around there don't quote me okay 60 percent for extension or degrees sorry not percent and yeah 60 to 70 geez testing me off the top of my head and around 25 to 45 for lateral flexion so if you touch your shoulder to your ear and then you should be able to rotate 90 degrees look to your shoulder each side or a bit further okay look my point being although this is an arbitrary number and not exact write down estimation of what you believe it to be okay can they look 70 degrees can they look the 90 degrees okay writing down within normal limits is pretty much anywhere between 45 to 90 degrees if you're looking over your shoulder okay there's a high degree of interpretation here however if you put 60 approximate we have something to work with we have something to compare off whether the individual gets better or worse okay then the same with passive range of motion so passive range of motion means you're doing the movement for them okay so someone's looking over their shoulder you gently grab their head and guide them over their shoulder okay also when asking ranges of motion and doing this is it painful 
or pain-free? Is it painful when they're doing active movement or passive movement? Okay, same with neuro. Myotone, motor, muscle testing, it's graded on a six-point scale from zero to five, five being the best or appears normal, zero being nothing there, you can't move any limbs. Okay, always put down, is it a five, is it a four, okay, but always compare right and left sides, okay, and start with the unaffected side first. Again, is it painful, not painful, same with dermatonal, which is skin sensation, when you're doing a light touch and a pinprick, you get where I'm going here, okay, I've gone off on a little bit of a tangent and a bit of a rant, but when you're writing notes, always have something measurable and to compare, Always have numbers and something to compare to a normal baseline. I'll leave you with that mini rant and don't get me started on the segmental tenderness and sprain that they've got in that form, okay? That's a, another conversation for a different day. Other things included a post-concussion treatment. We know that a multimodal approach is the best thing for an individual. This is a combination between physical therapy, manual therapy, exercise, rehabilitation, and education for a patient. Okay, a range of prevention strategies were looked at. These were specifically done in ice hockey, such as support of wearing a mouth guard. Still reading up on this at the moment, okay, but it's been put forth that a mouth guard can alter the position of the mandible or the jaw on x-ray studies, okay, and also dispersing some sort of force that is received look i'm not too sure it's a little bit controversial on some place some places where i'm reading and some journal articles i'm finding look at least it's going to save you on dentist bills okay personal experience easy to wear a mouth guard another one with ice hockey which you can kind of extrapolate to other sports would be body checking reduces concussion when it was taken out at certain age groups Again, that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, the one I found really interesting after last week's conversation, okay, in the cleaned up segment was neurological training and using neurological and motor warm-ups, okay, and a neuromuscular training style of warm-up. These have been proven in FIFA, which they've done with ACL injuries, and they've got a ACL-specific warm-up, okay, this was my warm-up with the under-18s for football, well, soccer, I call it football. I took them for three years. Last year, I implemented this warm-up. Really good warm-up. Looked a bit funky at the start because no one knew what they were doing. However, we kind of got a hold of it and actually looked super professional. But anyway, point being, the neuromuscular training style of warm-up after last week's discussion, I thought was pretty interesting and pretty cool. Also, we talked about rest. We know that active recovery is best and a graded exposure to return to sport, return to play, learn, everything like that. Retirement sport was another one that was touched on. Again, I'm just going to read this. They said that there was not enough evidence for this. So basically their conclusion on this was not enough evidence. However, be smart. Okay, If you have a few concussions close together, in my opinion, take an extended break. Do the rehab. See how you feel day by day, week by week basis. Sit out the season if you need to. If you're playing at a community level, it may extend your playing career by five years. we got to be smart about this. But in terms of retiring, again, no concrete evidence 
saying to retire or to continue to play, okay? Okay, now the more controversial side that's created the most talking points, and more so given that the first female athlete was diagnosed with CTE last week in an AFLW player, okay? I'm going to read a bit of paper in front of me, two paragraphs. I'm going to have to read them word for word because I cannot summarize them any better than what they've written. And I also don't want to detract from what was actually written in the journal article, okay? So it's clearly evidently going to sound red, but studies that have examined mental health as an outcome found that one, former amateur athletes, primary American football players, are not an increased risk for depression or suicidality during early adulthood or as older adults. Two, former professional soccer players are not an increased risk for psychiatric hospital during their adult life, and former professional football and soccer players are not an increased risk of death associated with having psychiatric disorder or as a result of suicide. Then there's a couple of paragraphs between, and then it concludes, the studies to date are at a methodological limit because most were not able to examine or adjust for many factors that may be associated with mental health and neurological outcomes of interest. The studies examining cognitive impairment and neurological outcomes did not examine genetic factors and usually did not consider or control for factors known to be important for brain health in the general population, such as educational attainment, socioeconomical status, smoking, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, sleep apnea, white matter, hyperinsensitivity, social isolation, diet, physical exercise or exercise to establish a clearly Causal association between sports participation early in life and cognitive impairment or dementia later in life equality that's association, future well-designed case control and cohort studies that include as many individual risk-modifying and confounding factors as possible are needed. Basically, what they're saying is that they are not going to draw a link between repeated concussions and chronic traumatic encephalopathy. They're saying that there is too many variables that they cannot control and they don't want to draw the causational link between the two that's what they're saying until they can control these variables they acknowledge it in a roundabout way that ct is real i guess however not from concussion based on that because they're saying about the studies of all these former players do not omit psychiatric hospitalization and things like that, okay? The whole 17 pages and journal article I'll put in the show notes for a night when you can't get to sleep, you can print it off, have a read. I'm sure it'll help you at times. For my opinion, basically, I get both sides of the debate here. And for transparency, personally, I think yes. CTE is a result of repeated head trauma. And note I said head trauma, which concussion falls under this category. Okay, I understand why they're saying we need to look at hypertension, socioeconomical factors, smoking, cardiovascular disease, sleep apnea. I, I get that 100%. On the flip side of that, I also kind of believe they're hiding behind the research. We only know what we know, is the saying in research. Many factors we need to take into consideration, okay? So the biggest thing to take in consideration with, you see all these, uh, how do I say this without being insensitive? Okay, we have the passing of professional players, 
during and after the career, the drug abuse, the alcoholism or the unhealthy relationship with these substances, okay, it's important to note that going through a professional sporting career, an individual is the center of attention and I mean that in the best possible way, okay, so they have the fans adoring them, the players adore them, the coaches are always doting over them, we need you to play, so they're so used to all this attention and for 99% of the players, that is all they've known from when they're a teenager or been scouted or been drafted, depending on what sport you're talking about, okay, they go through the system and then they get out at the other side, whether it be injury or their 30s, 40s, and they've retired. Now their identity is taken from them. They don't know how to reintegrate back into quote-unquote normal life or society because they've been so regimented. So I'm in Perth and I've ran into a former player. I won't say who it is. And he's now doing counseling. He's done a counseling degree and he's trying to counsel and educate professional athletes at clubs and transition them from being athlete back into a normal life, whether that be a person that's only been in the system one to two years or they've been in the system from 10 to 15. And I had quite a good discussion with this guy um, and it was coincidentally I ran into him in a coffee shop and we just started talking and half hour later. And what he brought up to me and what he said was that these players, they know no different. They've been told what to eat, when to eat, how to eat. They've got times they see their family, times they're at training, times they're on the plane. And then once all that ends, all that's taken away. They're pretty much told, thanks for coming. It was great seeing you. Then they don't know what to do. And that's his belief why they were having marriage breakdowns. A lot of them were getting depressed because they didn't know what to do in life. They didn't know how to then spend so much time with their children. And that's what he was going over, okay? So a lot of the time he was saying that they also tended to go towards the alcohol as a numbing type agent. Now, again, that's that far out of my field. I'm not going to comment on it. It's just what he was putting forth and saying to me. So you've got to take into these factors uh, the depression and the reintegration in society and not feeling whole tied into CTE or is it actually tied into the mental health component of retirement? So that's also what they're trying to say in the consensus statement. Further in this is that there's also a high probability that you're going to have sample bias in the CTE cases that they've discovered in the athletes, okay? Um, I can't think of a journal article off by name and off the top of my head. Anyway, so you're a professional athlete, you start feeling depressed once you're retired, you start getting some headaches, you can't think clear, and then you have these organizations saying, hey, can you please donate your brain when you've passed? Okay, and these are amazing organizations. This is not a knock on them. They are doing incredible work, okay? And I'll be signing up myself, so put my money where my mouth is. Anyway, what I was saying is that these organizations then receive the players' brains, like in the NFL, and they cut them open, they find the, the CTA, okay? The, it's in the 90th percentile that they're finding. The sample bias has been that you're not getting 
normal population brains and you're not getting athletes that have donated their brain to these places because they feel they have no signs and symptoms. The ones that are donating are the ones that have the signs and symptoms, okay? And these papers stated that. They're saying, we know it's there. It can be as little as 10% or it can be as high as 90%. We don't know, okay? We're not going to know till we have a lot more of the population to study on. So that's basically like me saying, okay, you go out the door, could be a 10% chance you get hit by a car, could be a 90% chance you get hit by a car, I don't know. That's a huge swing, okay? So it's 1 in 10 to 9 out of 10. So that's the other thing to take into consideration is a little bit of sample bias there. Ultimately, we have to find a safe balance because at the end of the day, this is people's livelihoods. It is also their workplace. There'll always be risk involved, okay? We just have to find what that is at the moment, the risk, and what we're prepared to risk, and what rules that we want to put in place, okay? That starts with the consumer accepting changes to the rules, and I understand that's going to be hard because, an example, last year's state of origin in the rugby league, three people knocked out in the opening five minutes, the game was absolute carnage. They're saying it was one of the best modern games in history, yet it was also one of the most violent. And we all loved it, saying that the game's not dead. Okay, so we have to accept these rule changes that are being implemented. Further in this, players have to come on board from both angles. Okay, a lot of players, when they sign up, these rule changes being implemented. They say, yep, it's great. However, when they're on the receiving end of the penalty, they usually go absolutely mental at the ref. The coaches in the press conferences, they all blow up, okay? There's no shortage of examples here, okay? And governing bodies, lastly, have to provide unbiased research and not hide the results from past players, okay? A little bit of a side note, a tangent again. So just wrapping up. The consensus statement, they've gone through, changed some rules, added some changes in terms of recommendations, okay, that you'll find in there. And they've also doubled down on things that the evidence has suggested and previously reported that we know is true and that we know is fact, okay? I hope this helped and provided a little bit of a summary on the consensus statement and a little bit more of an in-depth thought on some of the tangents that I went on and the opinions that I've given and that's literally again the article being the show notes and I'll see you next week with our regular episode and that concludes today's episode even though I'm a registered chiropractor all the information provided today is based off my interpretation of the research and is of my opinion and my opinion only this is not a substitute for professional medical advice of your doctors or physician If you believe you are suffering from something similar or the injuries discussed in today's episode, please contact your medical practitioner. I am your host, Dr. Reese Granger. Thank you for listening.